From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. So you want to get into bicycling, but you're a little intimidated. Come with me to a nonprofit shop that's helping welcome new people into the biking community. I think that it would be great if shops, more bike shops, had the capacity to really explain to people why they're not making the repairs or what the cost is. Plus tips on how to ride safely this summer. Then from finding family through drag to tough conversations with loved ones, my story so far shares the journeys of some members of the LGBTQ plus community on the Western Slope. The thing that stood out to me was, I never want to make you feel less than. I never want to take away the experiences that you want of your queerness. The strength of Colorado Public Radio relies on community support. Members like you are essential for CPR to serve Colorado as a trusted community resource. CPR's business year ends tomorrow. You can keep this service strong and keep funding goals on target with your donation. Help fund in-depth news and music discovery now and in the months to come at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Yesterday on Bike to Work Day, we met Rachel Author on a busy bike trail in Denver. I usually drive, but we recently got these e-bikes and have found that it's a much more pleasurable experience just to bike from Sloan's Lake to work over here. Bicycling took off in the pandemic, and while it's cooled down a little bit, people are still spending way more money on bikes and bike accessories than they were just a few years ago. Today, I'm taking you to a shop that's also a place for people who want to get into biking but don't know where to start. Well, ask the questions you may be too nervous to ask yourself. This is in Denver. It's a nonprofit called Bikes Together. So we're standing here on Osage Street right in front of the sign that says Bikes Together. And in every direction almost you see bikes. You see bikes for kids. You see bike trailers. You see bikes of different colors for adults as well. Red, blue, orange. Some have shocks. Some have colorful handlebar grips. And uh, as soon as you walk in, you see tires. You see a cute radio flyer, which is, of course, one of our first bikes that we all have growing up. And literally, there are bikes overhead, bikes being assessed. Then there's this chandelier made out of bike chains, and you have to see it. It's really epic. Customer Jessica Guevara is watching her husband, who's sifting through bike tires that are tightly packed overhead on a shelf. It is good because, I mean, we have different, you know, options in there, and he can look for whatever he actually needs, you know, sizes, and um, it's good to have choices. We love bikes, and uh, we love to learn, you know, new stuff. And then my kids are into the bikes as well, so whenever we have time, we go as a family, take a small ride and have fun and exercise. Nearby, Bikes Together employee Mac Lyman is assessing a bike with the shop's volunteers. We have several repair stations with tools to work on bicycles from basically any era of any style, any, any size, and most any condition. 
We accept donations of any bicycle. Yeah, people are often surprised by how many different sizes and styles there are. So it's a fun place to see that. If that crank is stripped, we should maybe, you know, just use this as a, a bike to strip down. Just keep Lyman and Maha Perez, who's a volunteer board member, are our guides. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, thanks for coming to visit. How did each of you get into biking? Maha. <laughs> You know, I, I saw these cool kids riding bikes on the streets, and I wanted a bike. I bought this uh, vintage road bike that was a little too big for me, but I started riding around in my community and started connecting with people, and that's actually how I started uh, my career in nonprofits. I really enjoyed it. I love working with community. I love working with volunteers and just connecting with people through this really simple machine that is just uh, all-empowering. I'm just picturing you on that big bike. <laughs> so what about you, Mac? My parents taught me to ride a bike when I was really little, so I had that lucky experience and then kind of fell into a friend group that was really using bikes. And how I started learning bicycle mechanics was purely an accident. It was a way to get to know people. I lived in a space that had a lot of bicycle tools. Our neighbors knew that we had them and started coming by asking for help. So I, I was inspired to learn. I wanted to have an answer to the questions people were asking. All right, you're making me kind of rack my brain and think about how I got into biking uh, as a kid, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, well, I was super girly mm -hmm. and really into more like the dolls and all that kind of thing. And there was a tomboy in my neighborhood. I think we cut a deal where she was going to teach me how to ride a bike. So that's how I got into it. So we put a call out for bike questions and we got a pretty good mix of topics. So. Let's just jump right in. Great. So a person who goes by The Skipper on Twitter shared an experience. They said, I got a bike last year. I went to a bike shop for tire change stuff and expected that people would help me, show me the ropes, and it didn't feel like my space. Do you hear that a lot from people who come in here? Do you find there's a crowd who needs more hands-on help and might be a little intimidated? Yes, those are experiences that I've had, even as someone who's been a bicycle mechanic for 20 years, I still go into a bike shop and sometimes find that it's hard to find somebody who has the time and ability to answer questions thoroughly. It's a tough industry, so I have um, compassion for people who are running bike shops trying to figure out a way to make it work. And I think that it's an industry, both the mechanics culture and the cycling culture, that's been really exclusive. And people often feel like they have to walk in and look a certain way, act mm. a certain way, know a certain amount of information or technical knowledge. And that ends up being a kind of a snowball effect of people feel like they have to say a lot of jargon when they go in, so they do. <laughs> and then other people don't want to call them on uh, or correct them, and so it becomes kind of a reinforcing culture of exclusivity and competition. Maha, you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, I, I think people generally, when they see a bike shop, they just think it's a bike shop and there's this transactional thing going on, but community bike shops I've worked in, most of the people just stumble in and they're like, oh, it's a bike shop. But then we tell them it's more than a bike shop and they get really excited about the different programs that we have. Well, one example is you also offer time with the bike mechanic at a pay what you can rate and you recycle bikes 
recovering parts that could go to landfills. Yeah, that's a huge part of what we, what we do here is we feel like we're able to provide an opportunity where people can get affordable repairs using used parts and recycled parts and also learn along the way. Well, what's an adjustment or two that you think bike shops or bike groups can make to help make people feel more welcome and supported when they show up? You know, for me, I think like as someone who's a woman of color, when I was starting out in my bicycle journey, I always just felt intimidated going into bike shops mm. because there's a certain demographic uh, that is really geared towards it, no pun intended. Uh, and, <laughs> Catch that now. <laughs> and, it's, it, and, and I think it's really just great having all of these other different pockets of bicycle communities where you can really connect with other people outside of just, you know, kind of like what a bicyclist should generally look like. I think that it would be great if shops, more bike shops had the capacity to really explain to people why they're not making the repairs or what the cost is. Some of the realities of the industry is that a lot of the bikes that are produced and sold in the United States and through the pandemic are very, very low quality. In fact, were not even made to be repaired. Um, wow. So... I think that's an experience a lot of people have had where they got a bike, tried to get it repaired, and learned that it couldn't be repaired. But the reality is it's because it could not be repaired. The actual metal parts of the, the bike have started to pull apart, or it was um, kind of what we call built to fail with a very, very short intended lifespan. I wish that more people had that information so that they can avoid those products to begin with, but also understand that if they're not able to fix some, if they're not able to get help with their bike, they're not treated as if they made a bad choice. It's just, mm. this, is, this is a big part of the industry is these bikes being around and helping people find alternatives to those bicycles, something that can actually be repaired and that's something you yourself can, can repair with a little bit of support. Sounds like a no judgment zone is where you're trying to go with this shop mm -hmm. to make people feel comfortable and open to ask those questions and to educate themselves about the bikes. Mm -hmm. So biking can be fun for exercise or for more practical purposes like getting to work or school. And as you know, summer's here and gas is up during the summer months. Someone named Rob asked us, how might we better illustrate that bikes are not just for recreation, but a legitimate means of transportation? What do you think about that, Mac? There's no doubt that most of our culture and how our cities are built and where we put our money um, it supports driving and cars. But I think the more people see themselves on bikes, see each other on bikes, ride together, have fun doing that, I think that opens up the possibility to consider using bikes for transportation as well. Certainly having infrastructure around places to safely store bicycles, those things will help a lot. Now, we learned an unusual word from a response to our call out on Twitter. The word is quaxing. Not to put you on the spot, either of you, but do you know what that means? Quaxing. I don't know, how's it spelled? Like a Gen Z word? Q-U-A-X-I-N-G. I don't know. From what we've learned, it means transporting something unusual, awkward, or unlikely using public transport or a bike. Oh, or a bike. I've been able to carry home appliances on my bicycle. I do all my grocery Whoa. shopping. You can carry people. You can Impressive. use trailers. And um, the bike actually can carry a tremendous amount. 
And I think that word underscores Rob's question about the various ways people may want to use a bike. E-bikes have become a lot more common, sometimes for transporting people or stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you help give us a little primer on e-bikes? Um, just in my research, they seem really expensive. Are all e-bikes e expensive? Well, an e-bike, because it has a, a battery and a motor, is going to cost more than a pedal-powered bicycle. And much like a pedal-powered bicycle, there's a really wide range in price. Um, but to be honest, they do. You, the, the more you pay, the more likely you are to have something that's going to last longer, hold mm. up better, and be more repairable over time. So we are seeing that that is true with e-bikes as well. For Denver residents and soon state residents, I encourage people to look into e-bike rebate programs. I think this is an example of trying to put um, public dollars into supporting people and getting these types of vehicles, if, if that's something that's useful to you. Well, Maha, who should consider an e-bike, and what would you say they're best used for? People with children. I see a lot of parents, you know, riding and picking up their children. Hmm. People who may have limited mobility, but, you know, may not have other means of transportation. I could see it work really well for people who need to travel long distances. So, yeah, there's great benefit in e-bikes. Now, one of the hardest things about getting into any new activity is understanding the etiquette and, quote, normal way of doing things. Now, Kelsey told us, I would like clarification on the laws governing bike lanes. Are they one way? Can you ride scooters? And I'd add to that, can you ride e-bikes in the bike lanes? Oh, no, this is one of those things where the laws have changed a lot in recent years, y'all. So this is a thing you have to look up. But my understanding is that in Denver, it is yeah, it's directional with the car traffic, unless otherwise noted. You do not have to be in a bike lane as a bike. You can ride wherever it is safe for you to ride, although you're not supposed to be riding on the sidewalks. Those are meant to be for pedestrians only mm. or people using wheelchairs. And then as far as e-bikes, e-scooters, those vehicles are all allowed in bike lanes. There are some mile per hour restrictions. I believe you have to be under certain speed limit in order to be on a lot of those bike paths, um, just to make sure that everyone can safely share them since people are gonna be going at different, different speeds. They do check too. I've rode on the bike path and my friends, they were going over 15 and they were stopped. Oh, wow. Are you serious? Yeah, I don't remember if it was wow. the park ranger, but yes, uh, they, they told them, you have to slow down. Well, I think both drivers and cyclists can be confused about the new types of bike lanes or paths we see on the street. Is there something you wish drivers knew when it comes to biking right of way? Bicycle Colorado is actually launching a, an online education series for drivers to educate drivers more about cyclists and mm. some of that etiquette. So I encourage people to look that up, Bicycle Colorado. Um, yeah, as someone who's a, a cyclist, I would say maybe two big takeaways for motorists. You know, if, if you're acting predictably on the road, that's a good bet. We see a lot of people make U-turns in neighborhoods that they shouldn't be. And, uh, you know, I've hear, heard stories about people who have, you know, been hit because they didn't see that cyclist. Another one is when you are parked and you are about to open your door on the street, be sure to look behind you as well, because we are pretty quiet and we can be pretty fast and nimble, but we don't know what you're doing. Unfortunately, as biking picked up in 2020 and 2021, 
so did accidents involving cyclists. So Hillary asked us this question, how do we promote cycling while people's fear of dying while cycling is not unwarranted? Either of you wanna jump in on that? Yeah, it's huge and it's scary. We've lost some friends in the last year to vehicle accidents with bicycles. There are more ways to prioritize the safety of pedestrians and cyclists over the convenience of cars. So Maha, how do you start to talk to people about the risks of cycling while also wanting to encourage people to give it a try? It's uh, it's an open conversation. I don't know. Um, it it's usually just comes in in spaces like these. I try not to, <laughs> to force my uh, my love for bikes on people, but um, I, I think this is a uh, why like places like bikes together is such a great space for people to just talk about that and learn from each other. Amy K told us. What I love about bike culture is that there are so many ways to express yourself. It's not just spandex anymore. Will either of you show me your bikes? Of course. <laughs> so I follow Maha outside and they roll out a black pedal bike. This is my bike. I, all I had was a road bike and I needed a commuter and something for the rain and the snow. Yes. And this, <laughs> this was the bike. It's quite lovely. It's also been, um, it's been through a little bit. Uh, it's used, but you know, along the way, I've uh, added a few things here and there. Uh, these fancy blue spokes. So is blue I, your favorite color? No, it's you know what? It, it, no, not really. <laughs> uh, it just happened to match my cage, my um, my water bottle cage. Thank oh, you. Oh, how cool! And my, my bike is black. And I had a matching black fork. And one of my mechanics friends found this really cool chrome fork. We had it cut down to size. And I just, I actually love the way it looks now with this uh, chrome fork uh, with an all black bike. Yeah, it's kind of decorative. And I guess it's sort of like every little piece reminds you of something. Yes, uh, yeah, every, uh, we've been through a lot together, me and this bike. And uh, you know, every little iteration is a story. We have to ring the bell. <laughs> That's a requirement. Oh, yeah. You ready? <laughs> awesome. Maha Perez is a volunteer board member at Bikes Together, a nonprofit in Denver. You can look up their next gender equality night where people who feel marginalized from biking because of their gender can use the shop's tools and talk to the experts for free. Thanks also to Mac Lyman for this primer for people getting into biking this summer for the first time. Continuing our discussion on biking, we talked briefly about e-bikes in that discussion. Denver is now in its second summer of a citywide e-bike craze. That's thanks to a generous rebate available on the battery-powered bicycles. Nearly 6,000 residents have cashed in on those discounts. The city says that it has reduced driving and cut air pollution. They also say it's amping up business for local bike shops. But as CPR Sam Brash reports, more than half the discount dollars went to a single shop, and other retailers aren't happy about it. It is a perfect spring morning when Grace Rink, Denver's chief climate officer, kicks off an e-bike rally at a park in downtown Denver. Who feels joy when they're riding your e-bike? Everybody! About 100 riders have rolled up just to celebrate Denver's e-bike program. Now, there are free breakfast burritos, but still, it's not a bad turnout for 8 a.m. on a Sunday. 
The city launched its rebates last year, and it spent more than $5 million on the discounts. That's far more than anyone expected. Now other communities want to replicate the success. Uh, do you know that we have received calls from almost 50 cities across the United States who want to do exactly the same thing? And the program isn't just about getting cars off the road. It's a small local stimulus package. Denver's rebates can only be redeemed at bike shops in and near the city. The idea is to reinvest the local tax dollars into local businesses. And after our speech, Rink tells me that's working too. For every dollar that we have spent on rebates, $2 is spent by the consumer. So think of all the money like uh, for the bike shop economy. Some local shop owners, however, say the story is a little more complicated. Now, we obviously got a chunk of, of the money from the rebates, but we didn't get nearly enough as if they had applied more strict rules and regulations on what it meant to be a qualified bike shop. This is Mackenzie Hart. He owns Hart Family Cyclery, which sells high-end cargo e-bikes to carry kids or groceries or whatever else. When I visit, he's fixing the gears on one of these massive bike models. After Denver launched its rebates last year, he says one direct-to-consumer brand just happened to open up a shop in town. They took a very, very large majority of the rebates away from local uh, and locally owned businesses, which is a big problem that did affect us. Hart is careful not to mention that company's name, but all signs point to Rad Power Bikes. The Seattle-based retailer is the country's largest e-bike brand. It started selling online, but it opened a brick-and-mortar location in Denver last summer. And here's the really important part. It's now collected more than half of Denver's total rebate dollars, far more than any other local seller. Katia Chavez cashed in one of those discounts for a Rad Power bike, and frankly, she loves it. So right now we only have one car and I use it for grocery shopping, um, go to the farmer's market, to the gym. Chavez is a public health researcher. She shopped around some other stores with her Denver discount, but says their bikes were just way more expensive. Red Power also makes a special dog carrier attachment, perfect for her pug, Prudence. Yeah, we like it because she's, she's our part of the family, so we don't want, want to leave her at home. So why couldn't Rad Power just sell their bikes through local shops too? Kelsey Wickman is a company spokesperson. She says selling directly to consumers avoids a markup and keeps prices low. And we took out some of the middlemen that exist with other brands and competitors and really operated that direct relationship with our customers. Now brands like Rad Power and other online sellers are on track to benefit from another climate incentive program. In August, Colorado is set to launch a statewide e-bike rebate program aimed at low and moderate income residents. It's worth up to $1,100 for an individual, and it's planning to include approved bike shops and online brands. That disappoints Mackenzie Hart, the local shop owner. They're pushing that money out of state. They're pushing that money out of country more often than not. And that's unfortunate to see. Meanwhile, a state spokesperson says including online retailers is really about accessibility. To build on Denver's success, it wants to offer affordable options and bikes for people in rural areas, places that might not be near a local shop. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched 
The new podcast from CPR News is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. In 1976, a handful of young journalists launched a Pueblo-based Chicano newspaper called La Cucaracha. But by 1983, the volunteer-run paper stopped regular publication. Now the ink is flowing again. La Cucaracha founder and current editor Juan Espinoza is an award-winning journalist who spent more than two decades at the Pueblo Chieftain. He spoke with KRCC's Shauna Lewis. Well, you know, there was a uh, phenomenon known as the Chicano movement, which was really the Chicano civil rights movement. And when uh, I got involved in journalism, I just recognized we weren't getting a fair deal in the mass media across the board. Television, radio, and uh, newspaper coverage was very biased and didn't really understand us very well. Anyway, we weren't well represented. And so it became a goal of mine to try to create that representation in the media. Tell me why now you've decided to bring the newspaper back. You know what? It's probably needed now more than ever. We're part of the mix that's serving this community in terms of news delivery. And what I want to do with the Cucaracha is represent our community, the Chicano community. But I also want to do a lot of mainstream kinds of reporting that is not being done by anybody. So I think if you picked up a recent edition... You'd see by the variety of the stories that we're reporting that, you know, we're not just a Chicano newspaper. We're a Chicano-run newspaper that's trying to report the most important news of our community. Backing up a little bit, tell me what it was like to get La Cucaracha reported, written, and published back in those early days. And I got to tell you, our early staff was just, they were troopers because we had families to support. And, you know, one of the things is that we didn't believe in public assistance. We we were being critical of the government, and we found it inconsistent to ask the government to help us. So we didn't. I mean, I was eligible for food stamps for the first 10 years of my marriage, and we never got food stamps once. But I always worked at different jobs, and everybody else did too. The weekend that we would do the cucaracha, I would borrow a selectric typewriter, and everybody else would do that too. And so we had like a long table set up with all these selectric typewriters borrowed from different uh, agencies, and that's what we used to typeset and to write our articles. I would get off on a, on a Friday afternoon about 5 o'clock, and we would work through the night And then we'd work all day Saturday. We frequently worked through the night on Saturday. We sometimes had to work the Sunday and Sunday night into Monday morning. And we did that for almost the whole eight years that we published. You know, the other thing is we had another little group of supporters that they would just start coming through the door on Friday afternoon with pots of food you know, menudo and stacks of tortillas. And their mission was to make sure that we didn't have to take a lunch break and go someplace to eat and spend money. It was a real community effort. What do you think the most important story that La Cucaracha has covered since 1976? I would say the one that had the most historical significance is the land rights story out of San Luis. There was a large parcel of land, 77,000 acres, that was set aside for the community to use as a resource. It was considered communal land, but 
it passed into private hands in 1960. A guy by the name of Jack Taylor bought that ranch, and he cut off all the roads. They sued Jack Taylor for access for the historic rights, and the Colorado Supreme Court upheld the historic rights of the original settlers and their uh, heirs. And so now there's over a thousand people that have access to that ranch to use it the way traditionally was set aside. That story was being ignored by the mass media because Jack Taylor had a lot of influence and the people of the community that were fighting for the rights were portrayed as like like bandidos that were trying to run this poor white guy off his land. And, and it was just terribly one-sided. And I know we played an important role in that particular story. And that's just one of many. Go ahead and talk about what niche you feel La Cucaracha fills now. You know what? The other sad thing is that the relevance is, is that many of the issues that we're dealing with right now today in Pueblo, Colorado and in other parts of the country are the same issues that we were addressing back in the 70s. Not that much has changed. Uh, you know, we have a lot of good success stories and we, and we try to tell those as much as we can. But, you know, for the majority of us, we're still in the low income jobs. We have the lowest educational attainment. We have the poorest health care and we need to continue to raise ourselves up. And, and the Cucaracha is part of that. KRCC Shauna Lewis speaking with La Cucaracha founder and editor Juan Espinosa. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Celebrate Pride Month with Indy 1023. Celebrate love and community, visibility and progress. All this month, show your pride and listen to Indy 1023. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. For Pride Month, CPR's podcast, My Story So Far, went to the Western Slope to hear from the LGBTQ plus community in rural parts of Colorado. Those stories include having tough conversations with loved ones. Here's host Luis Antonio Perez at the Lithic Bookstore in Fruta, Colorado. Lehua La'a came to the Western Slope from Hawaii to attend Colorado Mesa University, where she took the time she needed to explore and discover more about what makes her happy. But coming out as her authentic self to the people who knew her best was not easy. Lehua shares the story of having that conversation with three of the most important people in her life. Her partner, her mom, and her dad. Okay. So, it was about two years into me staying here and being in the love of my life, I realized that I was queer. And to everybody else, I was straight. Um, I had a very straight-looking boyfriend. And I decided to tell him at my favorite part of the night, which is right before bed, and his arm is under my neck, and I am the little spoon. And I say, I got to tell you something. And he's just taking his fingers through my hair and saying, what's up? I said, I'm queer. <laughs> I think I'm gay. I think I like girls. And he just keeps stroking his fingers through my hair and goes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I was being all secretive. And I thought I was hiding it very well. He's like, no, it's okay. I love you. And the thing that stood out to me was, I never want to make you feel 
less than. I never want to take away the experiences that you want of your queerness. And so thus came to be four-ish years of researching polyamory, of figuring out how to come out and how to love multiple people. And it was actually, funny enough, about a month after we had gotten married that we decided to foray into polyamory, not as a unicorn hunter, not to be kinky in any way, but because uh, we married because we needed, I needed health insurance. <laughs> it was so romantic. I was so nervous to buy a house with him, to, to get these dogs with him. But the second he got down on one knee and said, will you be my first ex-wife? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's the one for me. <laughs> when I came out to my mom, I thought she was going to be really easygoing with it, really chill, just like, oh, okay, I love you anyway. And I think she was sometimes so wrapped up in giving love to all the other people that sometimes she might have forgotten the ones that she needed the love most for. And so I was uh, sitting in the city market Clifton parking lot on the phone with my mom and she is hounding me as to why my husband is going off for the weekend to Chicago and didn't bring you and I just I'm like okay I gotta go love you bye and I hug up I real I stopped and I realized oh crap I gotta I gotta tell her I just gotta rip this bandaid off so I call her back I'm my hands are on the steering wheel I'm like mom I'm gay John's and me are in an open relationship okay and I'm bawling and she's just like I mean it's weird that you're telling me this. That's a, like, I don't need to know about your sex life. And I'm like, that's not, that's not the point. That's not, I'm not hosting these crazy sex parties. I'm not a swinger. I am queer and I fell in love with another girl and John has another partner and I just want you to know and I want you to be happy for me. And she's like, you have done the equivalent of putting on shoes on the wrong feet and telling me that it's comfortable. But if you like it, I love it. <laughs> and that is just kind of how my mom is sometimes. The last and final story that I have about telling my story would be uh, actually just recently in February. Um, my husband and I went back home uh, to Hawaii, and my dad is Hawaiian and Okinawan. He's a man of very few words. And the way that he shows his love is through food. And his favorite thing in the world is biscuits and gravy. I don't know why. He just does. My husband is our last day, and he's like, you need to tell your dad that you are queer and polyamorous, because if you don't tell him... Somebody else is going to tell him, so you need to step on it. And I am freaking out, and my husband, rightfully so, goes, okay, I've got it planned out. We're going to make him biscuits and gravy, and you're going to tell him while he's eating. I'm like, oh, this is why you're the brains. And so John slaves all morning, making the most perfect flaky biscuits and the most delicious savory gravy. And we're sitting out in our lanai, or what y'all would call a patio, 
um, and the breeze is blowing through the trees and you can hear like a faint rumble of the ocean from far off and there's a little bit of smoke coming out of the kitchen from like these eggs getting fried up nice and hot. And John comes out and with these two beautiful plates of biscuits and gravy for me and my dad. And my dad was so excited and he like takes his fork and he eats the first bite and his eyes light up and he goes, oh, this is the best biscuits and gravy. And I'm like, yeah, so John and I have something to tell you. And, and he's just like looks at me and he's just like enjoying just the savory goodness of biscuits and gravy. And, and John is like just hanging out, just pretending to make more eggs for himself so I can talk to him. And I go, yeah, so uh, I, I'm gay and I'm, I'm still married to John and I have a girlfriend and I'm queer and we're in an open relationship, but it's not like what you think. It's not like the weird pornos or anything like that. It's just we're happy and and so we're in an open relationship and he just looks up and looks at John in the kitchen and looks back at me and he takes another bite of biscuits and gravy because these are really good biscuits and gravy. <laughs> and at that moment, I just took like this big sigh of relief because I knew that he is a man of few words and that he was okay. And I knew that I was okay because... Sometimes the words that are better left unsaid are just about how good biscuits and gravy are. Thank you. Thank you, Nehua, for that story. It reminds us how important it is to have the support of family and friends in our lives. That is my story so far with host Luis Antonio Perez. Hear the entire episode at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Also this Pride Month, a group of LGBTQ plus teens from the Front Range flexed their creativity to put on a fashion show. CPR's Paolo Schausita takes us to the workshop and the runway. Inside a small classroom at the University of Colorado Boulder, the memory of punk fashion icon Vivian Westwood lives on within 14-year-old Aura Charnick. Like at the beginning of 2021, I started doing more research on punk fashion and like a bunch of punk subcultures and I really identified into it. So I started dressing like that more and I figured this was a perfect opportunity to sort of make something inspired by that. Charnick is a participant in Slay the Runway, a workshop for LGBTQ teens run by Firehouse Art Center. Through the workshop, teens are taught the basics of sewing, color, and shape. At the end of the two-week program, they use those skills to put on a fashion show featuring clothing they designed. Charnik, of course, wants to emulate their punk idols. They went to a thrift store and found a black pleather skirt, a classic centerpiece worn by garage rock bands across the country. To enhance the look, Charnik ripped up pieces of patterned shirts and sewed them onto the skirt. It was still missing something but Charnik had an idea. I have these screw-in spikes I got online, and I'm just poking a small hole with the sewing scissors, putting the screw-in on one side and screwing in the spike on the other side. Charnik is one of over a dozen teenagers taking part in the program. For some teenagers, like Grace Gruber, who is incorporating a stuffed dragon into her design, nothing specific is really guiding their vision. I just like dragons. 
but for some, like Z Saling, their personality and lifestyle shines through their outfits. I am working on like a Barbie princess looking fairy thing. Saling says the Barbie princess look shows the more delicate side of their personality. A lot of the times I'm in a more gothic, deep grunge look, and then there's other times like today and with this dress where I'm more princess fairy, so I feel like it's just showing that I can express myself in just different ways, but I can still be the same person throughout. The focus on fashion for this workshop was intentional. Lily James, one of the program instructors, says it's because queer kids have always found comfort in fashion. Fashion is inherently queer. It's inherently bolder. It's inherently different from what you would see every day. And I would even argue that we wouldn't have a fashion industry without queer people. In the aftermath of the Club Q shooting and with other states targeting queer youth through anti-LGBTQ legislation, Slay the Runway organizer Stephen Frost says curating these types of spaces is an important goal. There's so many weird ways in which people try to control us all. And we want to just this to be a place where everyone has freedom, where everybody's allowed to express who they are. Y'all ready for some fashion? <laughs> Models, if you're ready, let me hear you make some noise. <laughs> Sounds like they're ready to pump this runway. Well, without further ado, let's get this fashion show on the runway. At the end of the workshop, the teens donned their outfits at the Boulder Public Library and put on a show for their friends and family. Charnik, the punk-worshipping 14-year-old, strutted out to the song Plump by Hole. Next, from our Boulder group, we have Aura! Aura I guess I just try my best to be, like, confident because the sort of punk spirit is like, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. And so I try to, like, embody that, you know? For some of the more reserved teens, walking the runway was an opportunity to shed their skin and embody their true selves. Here's Des Calnado. My second one, I was in drag. And I think for me, like when I'm in drag, I have much more confidence because it's like it's a drag persona. The runway lights turning off at the end of the show marks the end of the workshop. But the teens are allowed to take their outfits home. For them, the world is a runway. I'm Paolo Shasada, CPR News. When we come back, we'll explore the fantasy room. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mount Snicktow near Dillon is easily accessible from Denver and Boulder, which makes it a popular hike. Before 1926, Mount Snicktow was known as Big Professor, then Engelman Peak. Snicktow was the pen name of Georgetown journalist Edwin Patterson, who said it came from Native Americans. But it was more likely the name of a fellow journalist, W.F. Watkins, spelled backwards, and the W substituted with a U. The hike begins at Loveland Pass with a thousand-foot rise over the first mile. Undaunted hikers are rewarded with unobstructed views of Greys and Tories Peaks and the Gore Range. Even Breckenridge can be seen over the Continental Divide. The trail is entirely above treeline, so hikers may encounter snow at any time of year and strong winds at the summit of 13er Mount Snicktail. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A quick note that our next story involves monsters. 
Okay, they are make-believe. We want you to meet a Coloradan who makes her living through the world of fantasy gaming, which has exploded in popularity over the last several years. Ready your swords, bows, and spells. Let's join CPR's May Ortega in a faraway land. We begin our adventure today in the resplendent high elven capital of Tuatha de Danir. That is our dungeon master, Jesse Jerdak. He's setting the scene for today's adventure. He's leading a group of five fearless heroes, including a wizard and a barbarian who's looking for a fight. Oh, and that barbarian is a three-foot-tall gnome named Penelope. We can go to the forest nearby. But at said forest, a barrage of assassin vines springs to life. That's right, assassin vines. They are not friendly, and they have flowery heads bigger than your torso. They are poisonous, they are large, and they are very deadly. Suddenly, one of the vines wraps itself around the group's friend, Lyrith. Just like that, it's time to fight. Enter the dice. Rolling dice is a huge part of what's happening and what's to come. Whoever has the highest roll will fight first. 22! This means Penelope gets first strike. She tries to bite down on the portion of vine that's wrapped around Lyrith, and it just comes apart as the frost from her teeth makes it brittle and it cracks. The group has to slay over a dozen assassin vines, and they are not easy to kill. Fast forward three hours, several team members are incapacitated, others are wounded, and everyone is exhausted. But the vines have been defeated. Then everyone shuts their laptops, packs up their dice, and heads home. This is what it's like to play Dungeons and Dragons. It's a lot of role-playing with a lot of imaginary action. And Penelope is not a real person. She's a character played by a Colorado gamer. Hi, I'm Ginny D. I am a professional tabletop gaming YouTuber, content creator. Ginny D makes her living off of the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Her meat and potatoes is making videos on YouTube, teaching others about the game. A personality on a basic level is the combination of internal and external context. Your personality is what you think and what you do. Let's break that down a little. That is actually how I found her. When I first wanted to learn how to build a great character, I looked it up on YouTube. The top results? A chipper woman with big eyes and minty green hair. As it turns out, Ginny lives in Denver, along with her fellow D&D playing husband and their two cats. Ginny has been playing for close to four years. I mean, it's completely changed my whole life's trajectory, like not just as a hobby, but obviously as a career. What started out as a fun pastime quickly took over her life in a good way. I knew that I was a big nerd. I've always been just a big fangirl, and when I love something, I want to make something with it. And she's made a whole lot of something from her love of the game. She creates most of her videos and her costumes at her home office. How would you describe this room to people who cannot see it? Well, it is a smallish walk-in closet that is completely jam-packed floor-to-ceiling with costuming. And weapons. Weapons like swords, axes, and a giant lollipop. She didn't make everything that's in here, 
But there are some projects she put some extra love into. This is Penelope's costume. I did a bunch of hand embellishment on this little capelet. These are real quartz crystals here. She has a cute little apron. She has a little knife in a pouch. Ginny has made costumes for fun since she was a kid. Halloween was one of her favorite holidays, and she would go all out. Then she kept creating more and more. Eventually, she started making parody videos online. One of her most popular parodies was inspired by Carrie Underwood's biggest hit. At that point, I was like, wait, it's possible to make money just making whatever weird, crazy stuff I want to make online. And thus, Ginny D, the online creator, was born. In her office hangs a silver plaque from YouTube. It celebrates her milestone of hitting 100,000 subscribers in early 2020. She reached half a million subscribers in May by steadily releasing new videos once a week. But for her, it's about more than the numbers. She's found a community where she belongs, and where she can make others feel welcome too. She especially appreciates that now, when many people work from home and it's tougher to cultivate meaningful relationships. There's something vulnerable about just playing pretend with a bunch of adults, you know? And you can get very invested in it, and I love that. I'm sorry, evil? Yeah. You That's are a little bit... You uh, are sacrificing the souls of the dead to a corrupted celestial who feeds on the grief of those left behind. That's Ginny's character, Penelope, arguing with her husband's character over his slow spiral into villainy. There's a lot to explain there, but you get the gist. This group has been gathering every other Sunday for three years. Some campaigns, as they're called, go on for decades. Ginny says playing this game has made her less shy and more creative. And it's bolstered some parts of who she's always been. She likes to wear makeup. She enjoys pastel colors, flowers, and she really lets those things shine in her content. But... She's being her true feminine self in a male-dominated space. While everybody on the internet gets negative comments and comments that are, that are rude or, or criticizing or dismissive, there's a certain flavor to them when you are a woman that is different. Like when people ask if she's pregnant when she's not. When she forgoes makeup, people tell her she looks tired. It gets frustrating. But there's also an upside to being this genuine, this publicly. Being able to hear from other women in this space that seeing me be a prominent creator in the space has made them feel more welcome within D&D is so meaningful to me. Plus, there's another reason she keeps her head held high. And also, I'm powered by spite. So the more that people are like, you don't belong here, I'm like, I'm going to belong here so hard, you don't even know. So on the surface, yes, it's playing pretend while slaying fake monsters with friends. On a deeper level, though, it lets you slip into who you really are, or maybe who you want to be. It helps you find you. I'm May Ortega, CPR News. 
Find some cool photos of Jenny D, her cosplay, and her huge collection of dice at CPR.org. And maybe share it with a friend you'd like to play D&D with. Thanks for joining us today from my fellow wizards and warriors on the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.